This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The late 19th and early 20th centuries in Europe were times of intense technological, social, and political change and transformation. And so it's no surprise that much of the art and literature of this period was equal in its innovative intensity, attempting to make sense of times that were radically out of joint. Traditional scholarship on this period has focused on the alienation and disassociation that could be experienced when trying to keep up with the frenetic pace of modern life. But is this what the artists and writers of the day were trying to communicate to their audience? Without discounting the alienating effects of modernity, Malika Maskaranek has stepped in with a fascinating monograph on the period, The Forces of Form in German Modernism, which challenges and complicates this reading drawing our attention to other themes present in the work of the period, turning to various archival sources to see what the artists and their peers were interested in. Mascarenek finds a collection of figures reflecting on questions of the forces and forms that hold bodies together against the weight of gravity. In this intellectual milieu, buildings and statues' capacity to hold themselves up can be part of profound aesthetic experience. Abstract shapes maintaining their position on a page can stir feelings of empathy, and even simple everyday activities such as laying down, standing up, and walking around are activities of profound existential importance. Touching on figures such as Schopenhauer, Rodin, Simmel, Clay, and Kafka, Muscarinek's book is overflowing with insights that will help students and scholars of the period revisit these works with fresh eyes, and like the artists and writers discussed, she will prove an excellent interlocutor for all those interested in what it means to be human. Malika Maskaranek, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I always like to kick episodes off by asking guests to introduce themselves. So could you maybe tell listeners a bit about who you are and what your work and research tends to focus on? So my my educational background is in the United States, um, and it's in the fields of philosophy and German studies. And more recently, I've been moving more towards visual studies and art history. 
I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Bern in Switzerland, and I'm pursuing there my interests in, in 19th century and also 20th century literature and the arts. Yeah, so to kick off the conversation about this book, um, I think it's worth setting the stage a bit for people who maybe aren't overly familiar with this area. Um, you're talking about kind of the late 19th and early 20th century German art, literature, and culture. And in the few courses I had in college that discussed this, be it literature or art history, um, the key themes seem to be alienation, the alienating effects of modernity, urbanization, industrialization. So before getting to kind of your own reading of that, could you maybe uh bring listeners up to speed about how this era of literature and art is traditionally read and interpreted? Maybe I could begin with two methodological points about how do we read this area, how do we encounter it. I think for me, two aspects were very important. One, I was very inspired um, as an undergraduate student already by Karl Schorschke's book on on Fandesiecle Vienna, where he takes a very broad look. He looks at urban planning, at philosophy and the arts. Um, and I try to do something similar and say that these are very different strands of modernism. Someone like Franz Kafka or Paul Klee are usually read on their own as singular figures, but that we can really gain something by looking very broadly at figures, um, at disparate figures, um, also at different media, at sculpture, at philosophy, at painting, Um, And that there's something to be learned from reading these people in dialogue with one another. And the second important methodological point to me was that if we want to understand something like estrangement around 1900, or my book goes up through 1930, we have to look backwards into the 19th century. Um, so that the 19, the early 20th century and the epoch that we describe as modernism is, is inheriting certain philosophical problems from, uh, from the 19th century and even from the 18th century. And for that reason, I begin, I look backwards, I look all the way back to Kant and also to, to Arthur Schopenhauer to argue um, that the Modernism has its own ways of formulating these problems and of answering them, but they certainly are historically inherited. Yeah, so jumping right off of that um, kind of methodological introduction, uh, key themes in your book, um, you're trying to shift our attention to uh, themes that have been perhaps overlooked in a lot of scholarship, um, themes of what it means to be a body that is made of substance that is subject to gravity, experiences itself as kind of being heavy, and this kind of struggle to stand up in spite of the gravity gravity's pull. Can you maybe speak just broadly as an introduction to what you're trying to draw our attention to that you see going on in this period, culturally, literarily, artistically? So I would say that the the key argument about the book is about a notion of form. And form is a very important um, concept in, in the history of philosophical aesthetics that we use to describe both artworks, um, both their concrete shape, what does an artwork look like, but also their ideas, sort of this, what's at stake in the artwork um, and form, but of course can also describe a lot of different areas. Um, it can describe, it's important in the, in the history of biology, how do we describe the form of an organ, organism? And that's looking again, both at its body, at its shape, but also at what it is, who it is and its development. 
And what I argue and what I'm trying to show um, for modernism and also looking back into the 19th century is that there's a really key shift in how we think about both the form of a human body and also in the realm of aesthetics. And that is that um, a form is not um, defined by an idea. So this would be, for example, a concept of form that we attribute um, to Plato and Aristotle, that the, the form of a horse is the idea of a horse, for example. But instead, what happens is that form is something that's evolving. It's happening over time. It has to take shape. It takes shape according to different pressures in its environment. And it's driven, and this is the key thought for me, it's driven by forces. Um, and these forces... Um, in the German, the, the word is Kraft, which um, implies both sort of an energetic quantity that potentially could be measured and it could be optimized, um, but it also describes a capacity and a capacity for development, um, a capacity, um, again, an important German term is Bildung, a capacity for education, for formation, for self-actualization. So the form that an artwork um, takes is a process, a temporal process of self-actualization, um, a process driven by different formative pressures. Yeah, and, Jim. Oh, go and ahead. I, just to continue on that thread, um, the model that I'm charting is is the 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 central aspects are that form arises from a contest between. Two, primarily two defining forces, and the one is gravity that we're subject to as material beings, and gravity threatens to make us fall over. It threatens um, that we might not be able to get up the next morning um, after lying in bed all night. Um, um, and um, what counters this threat or, or plays off of it is a will to form, um, a term that uh, a number of different authors and a number of different disciplines around um, 1900 use to describe what makes it possible um, for an artwork or also a person to self-actualize. Yeah, you brought up a few key terms there that show up that I wanted to ask about in the first chapter. Um, you start by talking about uh, what you call the Bildungstrebe, uh, the kind of building or driving force that kind of guides one's development as they grow and kind of achieve a certain form. But then you bring in, uh, for you, a key figure in this first chapter is Schopenhauer, for whom uh, the nature of our substance is uh, still... Uh, has this sort of trebe quality to it, but it's conflicted or antagonized. Um, can you kind of put Schopenhauer in context here to better understand what he's actually getting at? Because he's engaging with a particular kind of dialogue about the nature of, as you were saying, kind of force, drive, development. Right. So I think um, Schopenhauer is often described as representing a metaphysics of the will, um, and the will is, um, as I understand it, um, such a force that um, we as people have, but is also inherent um, to every form of life in the world. Um, 
And um, my argument is that uh, Newton actually sets off a kind of frenzy to find, to define the world um, through um, the lawful behaviors of force, um, that one such um, force being that of gravity. Um, and that what happens after Newton is, is a search for these kind of simple um, explanations for it searches, a search for lawfulness, um, which Schopenhauer is also taking part in. Um, but he actually undermines um, what was Newton's um, intention to describe the world through this one simple force of gravity um, by describing a conflict or an antagonism of forces. And for Schopenhauer, um, each form of life is driven by the will, but the will is constantly thwarted. It constantly faces obstacles. Um, it never is fully able to realize its uh, desires and intentions. And that's something that we also um, encounter when we, we see an artwork. We, we are able to see the ways in which the will is thwarted. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of artwork, it's also maybe worth bringing up that for Schopenhauer, art, uh, you talk about how art for him is kind of a place of temporary reprieve um, where we can kind of lose or empty ourselves. Can you maybe speak to that Schopenhauerian uh, theory of aesthetic experience? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a what Schopenhauer is um, thinking of is an important aspect of Kant's aesthetics, um, and that's the quality of disinterestedness, that I can only appreciate an artwork as an artwork um, and for its form if I'm not looking at, at it in a different way, for example, as a piece of food or as a shelter or in some sort of interested way. And Schopenhauer really takes this argument of disinterestedness to the next level. Um, and what he describes is this moment of in German, the term is Erlösung, a sort of a form of redemption um, from myself and my own will when I see the artwork, when I see an artwork. Um, and, and this moment of clarity um, where I'm, uh, this moment of reprieve, where for one moment I, I, I no longer see the will, but I see something that he calls the idea. Um, but for me, it's really key that... Um, um, I mean, for, for, for certain authors of modernism, this redemptive, redemptive moment is, is, continues to be important. Um, for, but for me, what's key is this description of, of an accomplished or a compelling artwork being one that leaves this antagonism of forces visible to the viewer. So I have, um, the more that I see the reciprocal intensification between a will to form and the force of gravity, um, for example, the more that I can become sensitive to this conflict, um, the more compelling an artwork is. So an artwork is not just that which is beautiful and harmonious, but also can display the antagonism that's also internal to my own form. 
Yeah, closing off with Schopenhauer, you also talk about the importance of will, which you briefly brought up. Um, And for Schopenhauer, will you see as kind of a resistance to gravity's pull towards entropic formlessness. And there's something kind of resonant uh, with us when we see, for example, I think in this chapter you were talking about architecture, um, we're kind of, uh, we can relate to the way it's resisting gravity, standing up against it in spite of its own very heavy weight. Can you speak to that a bit? Right. So, so Schopenhauer, for example, describes the way that when we see an arch, we see that this arch, that the weight of the arch is pressing upon the ground, that it's striving in a certain sense. It's will, it's almost displays a kind of willfulness striving toward the ground that of course would undo the form of the arch. Um, But the, the sort of, the masterpiece of architecture is that it finds ways of channeling this striving into a, a stable structure, one that we can appreciate. So we see this kind of this this energy, this force um, being being thwarted in its striving toward the ground, its striving toward for, formlessness, and that actually is what gives shape to to the form of the artwork. Yeah, moving on to the next chapter, you look at uh, the sculptures of uh, Auguste Rodin. Um, and to get a better sense of what you think Rodin is actually trying to achieve with with his sculptures, you, instead of looking at contemporary scholarship, look back to one of his peers, George Simmel, who wrote a lot in response to Rodin's sculptures, who gets something very different out of Rodin's sculptures than a lot of contemporary critics might, particularly um He's detecting that there's a certain struggle to stand. For example, in his sculpture, you have a picture of Balzac or uh, Le Bourgeois de Calais. Um, There's this struggle to stand up uh, present in Rodin's sculpture. Can you tell us a bit about what you see going on here? So what was really interesting to me was um, comparing different perspectives, um, scholarly perspectives on Rodin's sculpture. So um, what was really noticeable to me is that there's a, um, a really incredibly brilliant art historical essay from the 70s by Leo Steinberg on on um, Rodin's sculpture. And what he notices, and this is um, an important moment for me, is that if you try to reproduce the shape of any of these sculptures, it, it's literally impossible. You will fall over because the bodies are both so incredibly heavy. There's just such a mass attached to them. And they're positioned in these, in these terrible contortions. Um, arms are twisted back. Um, the feet are placed in a way that couldn't actually ground anybody. Um, and what... Steinberg Steinberg sort of reads this in line with a, a key argument or a sort of dominant argument about modernism um, that they depict um, the anxiety of the age. So a groundlessness, um, a, a inability to be at home anywhere um, that he sees, that Steinberg sees literalized in, in the inability of the stat of these sculptures to stand on their own. Um, but then when you look back to critics um, around 1900 and, and to Georg Simmel, who was also a very important um, um, writer about the condition of estrangement and mo- modernism, he sees something, Simmel sees something very different. He 
He sees this imbalance. He sees this threat of toppling over, but he also sees a fluid motion, a movement being carried out um, that he reads as the actualization of forces in a form. Um, So he provides me with a really um, key argument that I think modernism sees the threat of estrangement of of being ungrounded, unrooted, unmoored, um, but also at, reads the sculpture as providing an answer um, to how form is still possible despite this threat of formlessness. To contextualize this a little bit, you talk about um, uh uh, Rodin's sculptures as um, being very much a response to the challenges of modernity. For example, the kind of new fluid capital economy where things move a bit more uh, quickly, a bit more dynamically than they traditionally had. And within this new kind of fluid society, there's a challenge of becoming and maintaining one's individuality, um, becoming an I in kind of the capital I philosophical sense. Uh, But for Simmel, this is like actually really important because for him, the I is always defined as sort of being somewhat conflicted or in discord. Um, It's not, you know, an object one simply finds and develops, but something that is always kind of trying to maintain itself through time. Can you speak to that a bit? Simmel, I think, is, is very well known for his philosophy of money um, where he writes extensively about um, the way in which um, goods have acquired arbitrary value um, have become so that we live in an age of abstraction um, where the value of, of goods or objects has become unmoored um, from their use value or also from their makers and, and, and from the people who use them. Um, and that this, this, I mean, he describes this um, arbitrariness also through a metaphor of fluidity that, interestingly, he also uses to describe um, Rodin's sculpture. And what he sees in Rodin um, is a a realization of fluidity that so well describes the situation of modernity, but one that is not arbitrary. Um, and the reason it's not arbitrary is that it has described, it has given itself, and um, the sculpture has given itself um, a form that is both singular, um, it's individual, but it's also at the same time lawful and thus escapes the charge of arbitrariness. And this is also very important to, to Simo's description of individuality in the conditions of modernism, that there's what he describes at length um, in his essay on urban life is that the um, the need to become an individual, um, to individualize, individualize oneself has become normative for modernity, that there's these incredible social pressures to actualize oneself, to become somebody, and that this also can foster forms of sort of arbitrary behavior um, that again become unmoored from a form-giving process. And what Rodin does is really strike a balance um, between this this, uh, normative pressure to um, force a singular form and at the same time one that is lawful. 
Moving along, in the next chapter, you talk about empathy, particularly uh, from the critic uh, Theodore Lips. Um, but for you, uh, empathy is not uh, what we normally might think of. We normally think of it as something we experience for other people experiencing some sort of struggle and we can kind of on some level connect to that you know walk a mile in their shoes but for lips empathy is something we can actually experience for abstract objects and shapes uh, be it lines or circles or squares Uh, what exactly is his understanding of empathy and how is it that we can experience empathy for something as abstract as a line on a paper Right. So this is very um, a very strange moment um, that actually. So Theodore Lips is considered one of the um, the key figures in a in a movement called empathy aesthetics, from which um, in German it's called Einfühlungsästhetik. Um, Einfühlung is f- literally is a word feeling your way into. Um, and actually, the English term empathy. Um, only derives from a translation of Lips's work in the early 20th century. So that's just a little interesting etymological point. Um, but what what's so strange about um, Lips's work on empathy and actually the history of this term, if you if you look back into the 19th century, is that empathy does not describe a feeling for other people and an ability to understand someone's you know where they're coming from or where they're going, um, but a relationship um, to objects that are very very dissimilar to us, radically dissimilar to us, um, and um, in at least in Lips's work, um, highly abstract. So his favorite example um, of of an object of empathy is a straight line, a straight vertical line in which he claims we can recognize our own bodily structure um, that for him is defined through a bipedal posture and uprightness and through which we can relate um, through our experience of force. And so I find this a really interesting argument. Um, He takes, his claim is that all the the motions we make in our everyday life, so when we stand up or when we walk forward, when we carry weight, um, every small shift in our posture um, or in our bodily structure gives us, um, um, is an experience uh, from the sum of all these experiences, we derive uh, innate an innate bodily awareness for the laws of mechanics. Um, So I know what it takes to resist the law of gravity. I understand, I begin to understand um, as I move through the world, relationships of action and reaction um, of resistance, um, of being able to inhabit my own body and inhabit the world around me to respond to forces. So one example that he uses, for example, is the way in which I learn how to ice skate um, is for him an example of acquiring a bodily knowledge of mechanical laws. And... And so, and the second part of his claim is then that these laws that I derive um, allow me to understand the way that um, bodies, um, but also abstract forms in the world, are exhibit relationships of force, and that form of understanding um, is what he calls empathy. So empathy. 
the way I elaborate it, building on lips, is that empathy in this very broad sense is is a sensitivity to the relationships of force, force in bodies radically dissimilar from myself. So bodies that do not share my structure, do not share my anthropology, do not share my experience of the world necessarily, but do have and do exhibit these rudimentary relationships of force. Yeah, moving along with that, um, one of the objects or shapes that he spends a lot of time on and that you bring a lot of attention to is just straight lines. Um, And you have this diagram with several straight lines, but on the end will be different uh, shapes. Um, And I could... I I had never really noticed this, but I kind of noticed looking at the different shapes on the end kind of seemed to imply different levels of strength or maybe capacity to persist uh, through time against the pull of gravity or if you put something on one of those lines. Um, Could you maybe speak to the importance of just straight lines as such an important uh, shape for lips because they kind of show or make gravity really apparent um, or can really draw our attention to gravity's pull. Right. So his, his book actually has, or his many books that contain hundreds and hundreds of illustrations and they're actually intended as sort of scientific experimental handbooks. So the idea is that the reader can actually experience empathy for these different geometric figures while reading um, and and sort of test his hypotheses. So that, for example, when I look at a figure um, with sort of, for example, a straight line um, with curved ends, I can sort of feel the centripetal forces working at the ends of this line. But one of the interesting aspects of of Lips is... um, that I think our first associations with modernism are sort of celebration of um, of the curved line of sort of different ornamental figures. Um, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Of, for example, um, Jugendstil architecture is very um, often associated with these um, sort of undulating lines. Um, but for lips, it's really the straight line in which I can um, recognize my own corporeal structure. And, and that's why it, it, it acts as such an important moment for him. And I think also for someone like Paul Clay, um, that that's the line in which I can see myself. Um, and this very basic anthropological fact Um, which these authors are so deeply invested in around 1900, namely one's uprightness. Yeah, moving along to the artist and uh, art professor Paul Clay, uh, you talk about embodiment, uh, and you talk about how for Clay, embodiment is a sort of tragic condition. One, uh, we are kind of locked in, and that subjects us to the force of gravity. But uh, in spite of that, we're always trying to uh, escape it, to get beyond it, uh, to attain certain, uh, a, we have a sort of idealism. Um, and that's part of why we perhaps make art. Um, can you speak to this kind of tragedy for Clay of being embodied? Right. That, I, let me go back for a moment, just to say one other thing about the previous chapter that I think is really key, um, which is that I think what's being described by 
by these empathy theoreticians around 1900 is what I would describe as a bodily means of sense making. And I think this is a really key turning point um, also for the, for the later chapters in my own book um, to understand that for the tradition of, of German philosophy, beginning with Kant, there are certain categories that we use to make sense of the world around us. And these categories are like are those of space or time or causality. Um, and they're very abstract. And what happens around 1900 um, and through the lens of empathy aesthetics is that these categories of sense-making become bodily categories. So that my uprightness or my weightedness, um, my own heaviness, um, the symmetrical form of my body, that all of these become ways through which I understand the world. And I think that's really key that... that um, these this moment of modernism understands my way of, of relating to the world and representing it to myself um, as deeply embodied and as this form of embodiment um, as not being a threat um, of subjectivity or contingency or arbitrariness, but really also has a potential um, for lawful sense making um, and intersubjective um, sense making that what I see in the world could also be what the person next to me sees in the world and could even describe um, the experience of of other bodies um, bodies that might be as rudimentary um, as a straight line I think that's just a, an important moment to mark um, and then there are different ways um, that this that this emphasis on our own bodily structure, becomes interpreted. And, and for Lips, um, there's almost a sort of absurd um, optimism or confirmation of the achievement of subjectivity in the form of a straight line. I see a straight line and I see the potential for my own um, self-actualization, for my own form-giving process. Um, and I am confirmed in a sense um, as I, I, the encounter with a straight line or with a different vertical structure confirms um, the own, my own achievement with form. But of course, there's other ways of valuing that. Um, and, and Clay takes um, a different perspective and describes it through the, a more, let's say, tempered perspective of, of what he describes as sober or cool romanticism. Um, and that is a sort of realization of, of us being tethered to the ground, of a sort of inescapable materiality of our own being, um, sort of an, an inability to escape except in very small ways, for example, in swimming <laughs> or in flying or in sort of a, a cosmic imaginary to be able to escape this tetheredness um, for, of the Earth's mechanical structures. And this is what makes up our, our sort of our, what he describes as our tragic condition um, of always being moored, sort of confined um, to our vertical structure, of not having the dynamic freedom that he, for example, sees in fish or in birds um, or in this cosmic imaginary. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. 
At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, you were just mentioning animals. And in this chapter, you spend some time on the creation narrative of Genesis because you see a connection between kind of the story of how people and animals were created uh, and what clay sees in kind of our embodied condition. Um, uh, you say at one point that uh, we're not fallen creatures, but rotated animals. Uh, what's this kind of shift in perspective? Uh, what's he finding in kind of the human condition here? Right. I think um, this is a, I'm picking up on a, a thread throughout the book, um, which is that modernism is very much invested in retelling the story of Genesis, um, the biblical story of Genesis, and giving alternative accounts, so to say, of our fallenness. Um, so in um, a more... Um, Let's say that the, the story of Genesis goes that um, we were um, punished um, for overreaching, so to say, for our, our striving um, towards divine knowledge by being thrown out of the, the Garden of Eden and having to spend our, the rest of the remainder of our lives working and sort of um, subject to our own fallibility and the ability to fall, our fallenness. Um, and I think one version of the story would be to say that in our upright posture, we're again striving towards um, towards the divine um, in our through our uprightness. But of course, um, after Darwin, our uprightness takes on a very different kind of tenor. Um, it's not a striving towards the do- divine. It's it's an evolutionary achievement with a history um, that could have been otherwise. So it introduces certain moments of contingency into it. Um, and it also becomes from the perspective of sort of positivistic science in the 19th century, um, a problem Um Standing upright uh, takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy. How do we optimize that? How do we minimize the threat of fatigue? For someone like Franz Kafka, it becomes an insurance problem. Um, How do we ensure um, the threat of falling of both people and and objects um, against this this, um, threat? And so for for Clay, Clay uh, takes up... um, the story of Genesis, uh, and he, and this is rather interesting in his lectures at the Bauhaus, he sort of provides his own history of the world in six days um, that is certainly modeled on the biblical Genesis, but um, has important differences, one of those being that um, 
that the human is not created in the image of God, but is nothing else than a rotated animal. So if an animal um, walks on four legs, um, the human has been rotated 90 degrees and walks upright, and that this is the source of his tragic condition. Yeah, he also talks about how we can often try to escape or push against this tragedy of embodiment, that we often try and, through creation, try and kind of alleviate our struggle or rise above it. Uh, but for Clay, there's kind of a tragic irony to it, where by create by way of trying to create and rise above it, we end up only exacerbating the problem. Um, it only kind of makes it all the more clear that we are embodied, frail, finite, and subject to the force of gravity. Uh, can you speak to this kind of tragic irony of uh, how trying to escape our condition ends up only making it all the more obvious? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there's a key moment that illustrates this irony very well, where Clay writes, well, if only we could, um, 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 you know, chop off our heads and rid ourselves of these so many kilos of weight. I, I can't remember how many kilos he attributes to it, but he tries to quantify the weight um, of our skull and our 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 head upon our bodies. If only we could rid ourselves of this weight, um, how much more easily would we move? But of course, that's not an option. So instead, we're sort of condemned to be burdened um, by our own by our own minds um, for the duration of our life. And it, I mean, it's interesting that one might think of of art making or so the creating, um, which Clay certainly does, creating of dynamic worlds which are free from these constricting laws of mechanics as a form of freedom or perhaps escape um, from this confinement um, to our anthropological condition. Um, but for Clay, they pictures too and, and objects of art um, have their own materiality and they have their own materiality both as artworks made of, of paper and canvas and paint, um, but also in the, the worlds that they represent to us. And so a really interesting moment is when Clay is lecturing to his students at the Bauhaus and he presents them with a form that he describes as imbalanced. Um, so it's a sort of cross and it's weighted on one side, but not on the other. Um, so it's obviously um, has a th- is threatened by toppling. And Clay asks his students, what do we need to do to correct this form, to, to rescue it from its imbalance? Um, how do we relate to it? What would we do as such a structure? Um, so a key, another key moment of, of, of empathy and Clay's answer, which is the same answer that someone that both Schopenhauer um, and also Kafka will give to this threat of imbalance is that we start, we propel ourselves into motion. We start walking. That's um, our best means of, of preventing a fall. And, And this, this is really a key moment of Clay's, own aesthetics that a form must stay in motion and that achieve its own form of um, dynamic movement um, through the mobilization, the actualization of its forces. So once again, 
the form must be one um, of force, of motion. Yeah, moving along to the next chapter, you turn to Franz Kafka and you pay attention to a number of his diary entries. Uh, and you find in a lot of his personal entries, he's often writing about what it feels like to be embodied. He talks about the position he sits or lays in while reading or writing, the pains he feels. And you argue that for him, writing is in many ways, a way of reacting to and processing being embodied. Uh, can you speak to what you're finding in some of his private notebooks here? Mm-hmm. So what the moments I'm describing are called um, scenes of writing. So they're Kafka um, typically wrote when lying in bed, um, and he typically wrote during the nighttime hours. And that sets him up um, for a conflict between sleeping and writing. Um, Kafka was a, um, a chronic insomniac, um, and and what these scenes of writing where he describes himself writing and, and the toils that it takes on his own body um, are often described in competition with with sleeping. Um, so he has a choice to make of whether to write and sleep. Um, and this is, um, for Kafka, writing is embodied um, not only because he has to make a sort of choice, a decision between the bodily resource of sleep um, and the writing process, but also because he very much conceives as literature, um, which he sees himself as making, as literature being born out, that's his term, born out of the body. Um, So it sort of erupts from or has to be birthed out of his um, material body um, that is also at the same time being drained of this critical resource of sleep. Um, And... And what I describe in these in these different diary entries, where Kafka is largely frustrated um, at the inability um, to write, um, is that he um, is experiences inspiration, the inspiration to write, or also language as different forms of lightness, as for example, fire erupting from the body, or as light. Um, um, and that these are in marked contrast to his experience or his description of his own body, um, which he also describes as too light, but this too lightness of the body is an inhibition um, to life. So he's actually seeking, Kafka was not only a chronic insomniac, he was also chronically emaciated, especially towards the end of his life. And he saw this as one of the reasons why he couldn't sleep, that he was too light for sleep, as as he describes it, Um, too caught up in these eruptions or these, the almost in a sort of form of ecstatic elation um, that springs forth from his body as language and compels him to write. Yeah, speaking of his writing itself, um, he also sees writing itself as an activity that is subject to gravity. So you're talking about this kind of inspiration that springs forward from him, this lightness. 
but the challenge is really maintaining that lightness and getting it onto the page, uh, trying to translate an idea or a moment of inspiration into writing is often a real challenge. And you describe it as having its own kind of gravitational pull that it needs to kind of persist through. Can you speak to this kind of, uh, attempt to resist gravity's pull through the writing process for Kafka? I think what one sees in Kafka is something um, that I was sort of worked through throughout the book is that these semantics of of force, um, of lightness, of weight, um, of being fallen, that they really have this rich potential that often makes it very difficult to track their meanings, um, that they're often shifting. And Kafka is a really good example of this, that in a certain way, um, he describes language as this fiery, weightless substance, but then um, it can also turn and he describes the frustrations of writing down. Um, um, And in German, one uses the same formulation of writing down and he for him, literature that would meet his own standards um, for writing would be writing that really writes down into the depths um, that achieves its own gravitational force that remains anchored. And I think a really compelling image of this is in a well-known text of his um, in the penal colony um, in which um, the officer is subject to a torture apparatus in which his judgment is written into his body. Um, and, and of course, it's a form of torture in, in, in all its grotesqueness, but the same image returns throughout the diaries and the scenes of writing where Kafka imagines um, a kind of language, a literature that um, would create its own weight um, that would be written down into the body and achieve a longevity through that. Yeah, there's also key to Kafka in this way. You see this challenge of bearing one's own weight, and it is given, uh, it's kind of this odd juxtaposition of being both a sort of divine task, this uh, epic quest, but also it's incredibly mundane. There's kind of this intermixing of these two levels for Kafka. Uh, Can you speak to this uh, kind of dual task uh, simultaneously? the epic heroic quest, but also just the mundane thing of getting out of bed, uh, going down and getting breakfast, getting on the tram to go to work, uh, this this juxtaposition. I think this is a really key moment throughout modernism, this sort of um, realization of all the energy that we expend to perform very small motions or seemingly meaningless or at least um, daily sort of pedestrian tasks um, so that the energy that it would take um, for me to rise out of bed every morning and to brush my teeth and get dressed and have breakfast and that if we were to quantify all of these and add them up together, that we would have something that looks like in a heroic expenditure of energy um, so that... Um, that what we think of as very quotidian pedestrian tasks in the end have this, um, from a certain perspective of modernism, a heroic quality. Um, and I think this was um, incredible insight for me reading Kafka's Metamorphosis, um, the text for which he's perhaps best known. Um, and of course, it begins 
where um, the, the protagonist wakes up one morning and finds that he's been transformed into a form of a vermin or an insect. Um, and I mean, I mean, this story has been read in a lot of different ways by a lot of different um, readers. And But what was overlooked, I think, in these past readings is that actually the first third of the story, so a really substantial chunk of it, is dedicated to describing how Georg Samsa actually gets out of bed for the first time. And that I mean, a third of the story describes this, this struggle of standing up. And it's a really interesting um, series of passages where he... He wakes up and he has this new strange body um, and he watches, for example, all of his little legs waving in front of him and he doesn't know how to inhabit it. He doesn't know how to perform actions with it. Um, and he's tossing and bre- tossing back and forth and back and forth in bed trying to get up and, and he bruises and batters himself. I mean, it's also this moment of, of pain of inhabiting this new body. And then the turning point happens when he says he he real he learns to treat um, this motion as a form of playfulness. Um, so instead of treating it as exertion of getting up out of bed in the morning, he treats it as a game, as a play. Um, and then he manages to swing himself out of bed, crawl across the floor, and then he f- faces this next Herculean task of standing up to turn the key in in the door lock. Um, to let his family into the room, um, and and of course he's he's now a, a vermin. Um, he should exist on a horizontal plane and not on a vertical plane. Um, not as an embodiment of uprightness um, that lips and and clay have described for us. Um, but what he does in this in this final passage of of this opening scene is stand up. He achieves uprightness again um, and turns the key in the lock. And I see that again, it's, it's narrating from yet another perspective of, from yet another perspective, this moment of Genesis of recovering uprightness after one's fallenness. Yeah. That kind of dual kind of liberatory, but also constricting new relation to gravity. Um, but moving on to the final chapter, uh, you turn to Alfred Doblin's uh, novel, the 1929 Berlin Exit Alexanderplatz, um, which has often been kind of seen as this kind of, you point out it's kind of often read as a sort of nonsensical montage of information, but you argue that this ignores that there's a very repetitive structure to the story of the main character falling and then getting back up in various ways. Um, Can you kind of give us an introductory sense of what you see going on in this repetitive falling and giving, getting back up for the main character? Right. So um, Berlin Alexanderplatz is sort of heralded as the great avant-garde novel um, of German modernism. It's often um, compared to Ulysses um, insofar as it it both um, often describes a stream of consciousness, but it also um, incorporates a lot of different texts. It has newspaper clippings and tram schedules and even certain icons um, from Berlin city services. But I think that a sort of focus on these... um, 
um, on this avant-garde aesthetic has obscured um, that there's a very simple plot to this story. And the plot of the story is um, the story of Franz Biberkopf, which is also the, the subtitle of the novel, who has just been, the novel begins as he's released from prison. Um, he's been imprisoned um, for murdering his past girlfriend. Um, um, and and then he enters the city of Berlin and he has to be re-socialized in a certain way. He has to find his way back into this society um, and he struggles to do so. And the the narrative sort of takes the the form of describing his trials and tribulations of re-entering society, but also um, it's a story of redemption, of a story of him coming to realize um, the his fault in the murder um, of of this past girlfriend Ida, um, and at the end he he's reborn. Um, but what the this this structure that you refer to that I was trying to describe in the last chapter is that he um, these trials and tribulations are staged as scenes of falling and regaining uprightness. And this is made very, very concrete in the novel. He, um, he sort of um, has these moments of success, um, you know, where he manages to hold a job, for example, um, and then he is described very explicitly as upright. Um, then he falls back um, into his forms of, for example, alcoholic excess, um, and is described then, for example, as a snake slithering on the ground, so as having failed or given up on these forms of uprightness. Um, yeah, moving along uh, and kind of returning to what we were talking about earlier with uh, embodiment, uh, you talk about how um, uh, for this within this novel, there's a connection of one's kind of lived situation and their embodiment that um, living happens through or within a body. Um, and this goes beyond just, you know, experiencing basic tactile things, but also one's very uh, kind of identity, one's selfhood, uh, one's capacity to attain a certain sort of freedom. Uh, can you speak to the role embodiment is playing in this novel in your view? Berlin... Alexander Platz is often also heralded for its description of urban life. So a very, um, for example, it describes um, the building of the underground train line in Berlin um, in the 1920s. And it does this in a very kind of visceral way um, for it, it, the the text. It's not exact citation, but it goes along the lines of boom, boom, boom. And what I'm trying to describe is that these, for for one, these um, ex- the experience of urbanity um, that the novel offers us is described as a situation of embodiment, um, and that means that both um, the sort of the the physical environment of the city is described through its forms of bodily impact, um, but also the normative pressures. Um, that the protagonist experiences the normative pressure to socialize, to integrate himself back into this society, um, to recognize his wrongdoing. All of these leave a mark on his bodily form. 
Um, and these are described through, for example, um, the way in which he acquires or sheds weight um, or through the way that he is knocked down um, or in one point where he, um, his co-conspirator um, and also supposed friend um, organizes um, that he um, um, be run over by a car and loses one of his, his arms um, so that this, this, this largely are these failures of socialization are described then um, through the experience of embodiment. Um, and after his the loss of his arm, um, to return to that moment, Franz Biberkopf is described as a, a now imbalanced creature um, who has to face, sort of has to relearn um, how to move through the world um, in his imbalanced state. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, you start bringing up uh, or quoting a number of scientific formulations, a number of kind of physics equations, uh, which uh, for you are trying to describe certain events happening in the novel, but v- with a very sort of scientific rigor, a mechanical rigor. Uh, but for you, this is not just an attempt to kind of get away from kind of literary description, uh, but is instead kind of drawing attention to, again, maybe empathy uh, and how we can kind of connect to certain events uh, and also the limits of description. Um, I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that all that well, but um, there's kind of something that a very specific thing the author is trying to draw attention to about how we connect to reality or experience it in the limits of rigorous description. Can you speak to that? That's a very important passage because what's being described is is retrospectively described is the murder of of the, the female character Ida, um, for whom Franz Biberkopf ha- will at the end of the novel then accept responsibility, and it's this moment, um, and it's a very difficult moment to describe of a sort of dissociation between um, what's being described and the language being used to do it. Um, so it's. Um, what's being described is that Franz Biberkopf um, beat um, Ida to death with a mixer. Um, and what we get is this very dry sort of scientific um, description of the scene, both in medical terms. Alfred um, Dublin was a doctor um, and he um, very likely encountered cases like this and you know, had the medical terminology at hand to describe it. And he also uses, um, sort of inserts a calculation of force into the scene through which we um, could get um, could describe the impact of the mixer on Ida's rib cage. Um, but of course, what's what's what the reader is left with is this kind of dissociation with the inability of this lawful description of what has happened to actually get a grip on the situation. That it's an inadequate description of Ida's death um, to give us a um, mathematical formulation of the impact of force. And I think that Dublin is attuned to a really key moment here, a sort of, um, again, a, a key moment for modernism that what is the most adequate way of describing these relationships of force that we experience in the world um, is the most adequate way um, 
the methods, the abstract formulas that mathematics or physics gives us, or are the more um, adequate terms those of Greek tragedy, um, or are those are the most adequate terms his own, let's say something like the modern avant-garde novel? You know, what, what is the language with which we can get a grip um, on this situation? on this experience of embodiment um, and Ida's death um, and also von Spiebelkopf's responsibility. And what, what Dublin is also attuned here to is, as I described this in, in one of the earlier chapters that um, from sort of a 19th century positivistic uh, perspective, um, we, People have always been attuned to the laws of mechanics. Um, we've always had a form of embodied knowledge um, of mechanical laws. Otherwise, um, it would have been impossible to, to build lasting structures, um, to, to, to carry out um, actions in the world, to know how to carry or hold ourselves upright, to perform all these um, minute pedestrian tasks. So we all have this form of embodied knowledge. And what has happened at the end of the beginning with Newton and into the 19th century is that this knowledge has become be, been made explicit in a discursive form. And the discursive form is Newton's physics um, and also the sciences of the 19th century and perhaps also um, in forms of medical knowledge. And what Dublin sort of alerts us to is that these, these sort of discursive articulations of this embodied knowledge are not attuned to the experience of embodiment, um, that they are too abstract, um, too distant from the experience, too, too dissociated um, to provide an adequate and a uh, sort of a compelling description. And that's what we need literature and we need art for, um, is to give us, um, to reflect um, our embodied tools of sense-making, our embodied understanding of force, and our ability to empathize with other bodies through this um, knowledge, this embodied knowledge of force. And we can only empathize with Ida as um, a victim of murder through this embodied, these embodied tools of sense-making and not through abstract mathematical formulation. Yeah, in closing, that brings us through uh, the bulk of the book. But I'm wondering how for you, now that you've put all this on the table for us, uh, how does this shift towards these themes of gravity and embodiment help us kind of rethink the culture and literature of the era? Because I don't see you uh, necessarily just throwing alienation as a key theme out the window um, or kind of completely disrupting traditional readings of the era. But I'm wondering for people who maybe hear this and decide to go uh, revisit Kafka's novels or Rodin's sculptures, what are some kind of words of advice you would uh, offer them as they go kind of revisit this era that they should be on alert for? I would say a couple of things. I mean, one, I mentioned this moment that, that Leo Steinberg describes of, well, if you go look at a Rodin sculpture, try to, you know, take up the shape yourself, try to stand as the sculpture stands, and you'll learn something about it. And I think that's really key for me. And I, I would encourage anybody who encounters 
um, say, a, a modernist form to try to reproduce it in their own bodily structure um, and to see what one learns about it. I think for me, there's two key points. Um, the first is is that the experience of estrangement and anxiety of being unmoored um, from a certain social fabric um, is certainly um, critical to the nineteenth century, to the 19, late nineteenth century and the earlier twentieth century. Um, but I would really want to emphasize and and underline the ways that modernism answers to this crisis. Um, and that it it answers through this crisis by pointing towards the body as a resource, um, sort of the resource of of sense making, so that we have these um, resources of bodily sense making that allow us to relate not just to other people, um, but to a world um, of interacting forces. Um, and I think that the, uh, more broadly, um, there's been a, a, a sort of when we think of the arts of modernism, we think of them as undoing longstanding conventions of the 19th century as for what makes a good heart, artwork and um, that we no longer just have sort of beautiful, harmonious bodies. Um, um, but I think what what I've shown is that there's um even in a departure from these earlier aesthetic um, conventions, that there remains a very strong commitment to form. Um, that um, sort of become very um, popular to discuss different kinds of operations of formlessness or sort of embrace a formlessness that begins in modernism and becomes even more pronounced um, um, after 1945, but what the authors, someone like Kafka or Clay, makes very um, explicit is a commitment to the achievement of form as the ideal artwork, um, and that 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 commitment might be, um, to think back to Schopenhauer, it might be interrupted in different kinds of ways. Um, it faces different obstacles. It may be thwarted, um, but there is a commitment um, to form that is, are shaping the way um, that these authors think about their artworks, their literature. And just one, one other point that I would sort of pick up from the book um, and our, our approach to modernism is that um, uh, sort of an emphasis on different kinds of ways of thinking about materiality. Um, and that I just... Throughout the book, I'm searching for different vocabulary to describe this, but to think of our own weight or the weight of objects as not something that is simply to be overcome in a will to form, um, overcome in our uprightness. It's not just a hindrance or an impediment um, to self-actualization, but that this model of reciprocal intensification or this model of form as arriving from conflicting forces or antagonisms relies on weight as a key generative moment. Um, so that form depends, form can only happen um, because of, because we are um, heavy creatures, so to say, that it, that the form, something like a will to form depends on is contingent on having an opposing force um, 
such as the force of gravity. And it's really the interplay of these two forces um, and their strife that makes something like the emergent of aesthetic form even possible. And I think that's an important way of thinking um, through materiality in different ways of of not just as passive resistance, as something to be sublimated or overcome, but as generative. Excellent. Fascinating. Uh, Thank you so much. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a a book actually on about the Swiss author Gottfried Keller, um, who wrote from the mid 19th century to the later to the late um, end of the 19th century. And I'm thinking through questions of form again. Um, and I also, uh, it, I'm thinking about form in relation to questions of format. So format really in terms of um, the shape of a book, the cut of a page, it's binding. Um, and when we read literature, we think of it as describing a story or having a plot as bringing to life a fictional world, but we most over most often overlook that it's published in book form. And what I want to think about is, well, what does that materiality, the materiality of the book, have to do with storytelling practices of the 19th century? Um, and again, sort of in what ways does that the materiality of the book interact with um, become productive for Um, a commitment to form in literature. That sounds fascinating. We'll have to look forward to it. So in the meantime, uh, Malika Maskaranek, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.